0: Kia Welcome to the New Zealand General Practice Podcast. I'm your host, Dr Joe Scott-Jones. Earlier seasons of this podcast focused on joy in practice. This season is an opportunity to listen in on monthly conversations I have with Dr Dave Mapleston, organized for the Pinnacle GP Network. Dave shares insights into important clinical changes he picks up in his reading as a part-time GP and advisor to the Health and Disability Commissioner. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Scott Jones, Stockinger. I'm the medical director for Pinnacle, and uh, here again with uh, my colleague Dave Mabelston. Tell us a bit about yourself, Dave.
1: Yeah, morena tato. Um, I'm Dave Mabelston, uh, part-time GP, and um, do a lot of work with Health and Disability Commission, uh, looking at uh, my colleagues' notes and activities and the uh, outcome for patients.
0: You're going to educate me around some clinical snippets for this yeah,
1: month. Again, just a, a variety of bits and pieces, really trying to um, help my colleagues keep up to date with bits and pieces that get thrown at our emails on a regular basis in huge amounts. Uh, so I kind of go through things and, and um, try and sort out things that might be practically useful. Um, but the first one today I want to talk about uh, is really put a plug in for... how. Hayaka um, Haringa. Oh yes. So I've I've discovered it recently, probably quite belatedly compared to some of my colleagues. But it's a um, it's a website that re- the the aim uh, overall aim is really uh, equitable prescribing and best practice prescribing. Um, and it's a brilliant website in terms of what it offers you with your own your own personal data prescribing yeah. data compared with your practice uh, and then compared with national. Um, prescribing data, and you can manipulate um, the figures and graphs and things that they present. So there's several uh, categories they look at, type 2 diabetes prescribing, gout, cardiovascular disease, asthma, and selected antibiotic prescribing, and more themes coming on board as time goes on. So as well as just general education on best practice in those areas, you uh, can, can look at your own practice data and then manipulate that between number or percentage, break it down by ethnic group. Uh, And it just gives you a chance to compare your prescribing from an equity point of view with both your colleagues in your practice and your colleagues nationally. Uh, So just it it, it complements our clinical dashboard quite nicely, I think, in terms of maybe drilling down to a bit more detail.
0: Yeah, and you know, lots of organisations, uh, PHOs across New Zealand have those um, dashboards that way sort of feeding back uh, information about your practice down to the NHI level. What's lovely about this is the setting of the standards and the ability to compare with the national benchmarks um, as well. So uh, although you can't drill down to the individual patients because obviously they, they don't have the NHI detail in here, um, it's a really nice um, check against what you um, may maybe finding in your own at your own practice with a query build or using the dashboard as well. So yeah, really fantastic resource for, for asking penetrating questions about how well are you doing really.
1: Yeah, and from the uh, from a MOPS perspective, it they're built-in reflection templates that you can type directly into and save, and giving you the sorts of questions you might want to be asking. Uh, so it's a kind of an all-in-one package for um, get for, out of here. Yeah, amazing, no. isn't it?
0: Oh my god,
1: I didn't realise that was there. Yeah, so just reflect. So it um, it stimulates, gives you the qu- sorts of questions you might be asking about your practice, gives examples of what you might be writing in your reflections, uh, and enables you to to actually write write in and save the um, the reflection. So everything you need really to satisfy the the ref, you know reflection on practice or audit requirements for your MOPS
0: maintenance of professional standards. Yes. Very good. Yes. Awesome. That is, a, that is really useful.
1: So it's just a matter of registering um, and you get a password to be able to access your own uh, and your practice data. Uh, but there are lots of other resources available on the site as well. So that plug for, for education. Uh, okay. and Then moving on to something quite pragmatic, which is constipation. Um, thank you so this is this is really um, a recent study is this
0: because I've just done my bowel screening I was just <laughs> showing you my results
1: it's a yeah it's a segue into uh, into that but uh, it's um, talking about kiwi fruit for constipation which I think you know we've been we've been advising for years but there's increasing evidence about the efficacy of it so there's a, a paper this year published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology which looked at the effects of daily kiwifruit consumption on GI function and comfort. It was a randomised controlled trial, and it provides evidence that consumption of kiwifruit is beneficial for people with constipation and may have greater benefit than psyllium husk, which would be probably our number one go-to. And that's quite relevant because there have been supply issues with psyllium husk for a number of months now uh, in terms of patients getting hold of it. Mm. And clinical guidelines, they make a note that clinical guidelines still favour the use of soluble fiber bulking agents as first line management uh, options, but increasing evidence, and in certainly this study, which um, gives you that option of, of kiwifruit as a very reasonable alternative.
0: Just does it talk about dosage or?
1: Two kiwifruit two, two kiwi a day, I think they were using oh, yeah. um, in the studies. so uh, That's
0: not a hardship.
1: No. And I think it's you know you get the other benefits, of course, in terms of vitamin C and flavour and everything else. Yeah. And I've just put links into the into the snippets for uh, management of constipation, uh, a very good BPAC article from two thousand and nineteen, and also management of IBS in adults, which was a two thousand and fourteen comprehensive article. Yeah. They're both quite helpful. I'm not sure if there's any difference between the colours of the kiwi fruit in, in terms of efficacy. I used to get paid in kiwi
0: fruit in when I was working in a potiki regularly the people would sort of you know couldn't afford to 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 pay the fee but they could leave me a bag of kiwi fruit
1: so you've never had constipation or not what
0: <laughs> and and crayfish occasionally as well I'd have to say that which was which was uh, much nicer yeah. anyway. never constipated <laughs> anyway. never constipated in a potiki yeah.
1: but the um the red key food have just, come, have just become commercially available. Um, so I'm not sure whether they are as efficacious as the as the green or gold. They certainly taste very nice and they look spectacular. That's a- Worthy
0: of further study.
1: Worthy of further study, absolutely. Yeah. So moving on, um, again, uh, uh, being very conscious of resource constraints and how difficult it is to get psychological assistance for patients in a timely manner these days, Um I'm just referring back to the Just a Thought website, which we've discussed um, several months ago, but they've just released Mm -hmm. a new online CBT course for people with uh, OCD. Uh, So the course has been adapted for New Zealand from an Australian online resource, uh, which is in their This Way Up website, uh, but just made more specific for New Zealand. Um, And the the, um, accompanying blurb just talks about the courses for OCD having a role in supporting patients while they await access to secondary care services. So the course can either be completed by the patient um, self-guided or you can actually prescribe it. So once you've registered with the site, you have the ability to prescribe the various courses, uh, which then enables you to access a dashboard, which the patient also accesses so you can track how they're doing and um, use that as uh, like a feedback mechanism to encourage adherence to the course and also to, to discuss that follow-ups. Um, site itself, the Just a Thought site, quite a few courses which I found um, quite helpful. So depression, generalised anxiety, mixed depression and anxiety, insomnia, uh, social anxiety. So really valuable resource for you know, myself and for patients.
0: Mm.
1: They do have two courses which they now do in New Zealand Sign Language. So, it's staying hmm. on track, which is basically a stress management course, and the mixed depression and anxiety is available in New Zealand sign language now as well. So, again, a resource for um, your hearing impaired patients, which uh, could be quite valuable.
0: And that's very interesting that they're they're doing that in sign language as well. Do they do a Tadeo? I haven't
1: seen a specific Tadeo. or oh, there, there are uh, some written resources available in Tadeo. Yeah, nice. Um, but yeah, lots of lots of resources on all sorts of things, um,
0: yeah. and free for everybody. Though there, there used to be um, ones that were linked to particular PHOs or to particular practice management systems and so on, um, but this is available to everybody online. You just need to to register as a provider.
1: That's right. So you can. Yeah. I mean, the patient can access it without without your involvement if they want to, or if you just yeah. want to give them the website um, link, they can they can access it. But the once you've registered it just enables you to to make it a more formal prescription and that ability to track progress and the patient will, will then know that you're aware of how they're progressing etc mm-hmm. so perhaps a a more substantial ground for um you know for ongoing discussion and follow-up yeah yeah
0: i mean i think the uh i've done a couple of these things uh, online myself and um keeping yourself on track is quite hard But when you've got somebody looking over your shoulder, who's you know you're you're going to report to your GP or practice nurse, you know once a month to say how you're getting on. Having that, it keeps it does keep you engaged with it. I think it's one of the things with um, digital tools is the they often people start with a hiss and a roar and then they they sort of fade away from them. I think we we that's a pretty common experience, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's a bit like going to the gym. That if you buy. All this gym equipment and have it at home you absolutely oh, never use it don't but... make me
0: feel even more guilty
1: <laughs> oh i've got to be
0: helping me with my mental health not that <laughs> yeah.
1: I've, I've got a cupboard full of various devices that gather dust but uh,
0: the bum blaster did you ever see the bum blaster
1: no i did i did buy a something blade some sort of fiberglass blade that you meant to wave in the wind and build big biceps many years ago but uh,
0: my, my insomnia used to keep me up really late at night and there's a thing late night tv adverts i would i would i'd would find myself watching things about those those sorts of things anyway we're, we digress we
1: digress <laughs> uh, On to something more clinical again um so this is uh, an article on the recent issue of new zealand gp research review which looked at a um, dutch study Uh, regarding whether or the added value of CRP as a blood test to clinical features when assessing abdominal pain in children, acute abdominal pain, but particularly the risk of appendicitis. Um, So it showed um, that the sensitivity and specificity of a CRP cutoff of greater than or equal to 10 were 0.87 and 0.77 respectively. And when symptoms lasted more than 48 hours, the sensitivity increased to one, which I think... Um, is quite significant, although hopefully if you've got children with acute abdominal pain for 48 hours, you've done something uh, definitive with them by that stage. So the, the, the CRP alone didn't have particularly good positive predictive value for appendicitis. it's not, not particularly specific. But the reviewer noted that that point of care CRP testing is very common in the Netherlands. Mm. So they use it to identify um, viral versus bacterial infection, especially for acute respiratory symptoms and they felt the study demonstrated that, that it's uh, valuable in diagnosing acute appendicitis versus mesenteric lymphadenitis which can have very similar symptoms and signs so essentially if the cip is less than 10 along with non-progressive symptoms over 48 hours appendicitis is an unlikely diagnosis yeah i don't,
0: I, I think There's a lot of value in CRP and LDH as well for these inflammatory conditions that and point of care testing is available. I did a bit of a deep dive into this a number of years ago and um, unfortunately wasn't able to get any traction with Pharmac uh, and others in terms of implementing it. But I think as the growth of more point of care testing, particularly in rural practices, grows, we'll start start seeing this being utilised. Um, yeah, so there's, there's reasonable evidence it's not it's it's, it's again it's an, an extra piece of the puzzle rather than the only um you know people people the vulnerability of people just relying on the test as a you know is, is the problem and uh, we've talked before about sepsis and you know the clinical signs of sepsis the crp adds to your suspicion but it, it doesn't replace those clinical signs
1: yeah i think it, it is a uh, you know there's always a degree of uncertainty but maybe you just reduce that uncertainty uh, by adding in extra pieces that support one or other. Yeah. diagnosis. I think
0: I, think in, I was looking at it in terms of antibiotic uh, reducing antibiotic prescriptions and um, the unnecessarily and in terms of the, so viral and bacterial infection. Um, and I, I still I still think it's a valuable thing for us to to look at. I know,
1: and I know one of the, at one stage one of the um, clinical pathways for one of the regions, the uh, community-acquired pneumonia pathways for one of the regions, had a, used a tool which had a CRP uh, as part of the tool in terms of yeah. of, of um, suspicion for bacterial infection. So again, it's a it's a moving feast, and, and um, you know who knows at some stage in the next not too distant future we we'll, we might be point-of-care testing for a whole variety of things. Yeah. This one is a very seasonal uh, and uh, relevant um, look at croup and steroids. So the croup season started early this year, apparently. But the recent pearl—I uh, can't remember what pearl stands for. for um, uh, uh, uh,
0: primary care evidence um, that really matters, or something.
1: Yeah, or something in real was, life. In, uh, in real life yeah. But it was a pearl in New Zealand doctor which looked at the question: Are Steroids effective and safe for treating croup in children aged 18 years and under. Uh, and they looked at a Cochrane systematic review, which basically came out saying that compared with placebo, several steroids were, were beneficial. So they looked at budesonide, which was two milligrams per nebulizer, and that was effective. Dexamethasone reduced the symptoms of croup within two hours of treatment, with the effect lasting at least 24 hours. And one trial, that showed prednisone reduced the symptoms of croup within six hours, with the effect lasting at least 12 hours. And interestingly, one trial showed that fluticasone, uh, which I presume they were using inhaled, didn't reduce the symptoms of croup after two, six or 24 hours compared with with placebo. So there wasn't much difference between dexamethasone and prednisone in, in terms of reduction of croup symptoms two hours following treatment and likely no difference after six hours. But dexamethasone probably reduced the rate of return visits or readmissions for croup by almost a half. And probably of most relevance, the the smaller dose of dexamethasone, which is 0.15 milligrams per kilogram, was just as effective as the standard dose at the time of the study, which was 0.6 milligrams per kilogramme. Uh, and the, the Cochrane um, conclusion was that more studies were needed to confirm this, but I note that the Starship Hospital Group guidelines uh, recommend the low-dose oral dexamethasone 0. 0.15 milligrams per kilogram per dose or oral prednisone 1 milligram per kilogram per dose. And um, I think they, they use the dexamethasone uh, pre- pre- preferably, but um, community providers, they say, Fine to use oral prednisone, one milligram per kilogram per dose, once daily for two days. So it works. Mm-hmm. This As is really it-
0: interesting, isn't it? it? Keeps popping up and then going away. There's other people get anxious about it, and, it, and, and um, uh, so there's quite a lot of uh, variation in practice around croup, isn't there? I mean, I know I had got into my head that it didn't make any difference. <laughs> we weren't to use it.
1: Know well, that's that's this next bit, the next vital bullet point, which is that it's important to differentiate the steroid device for croup and asthma from that for bronchiolitis. Where Starship Hospital and BPAC guidelines say for bronchiolitis, don't administer beta agonists, don't administer steroids, systemic or nebulized, don't administer adrenaline except in a peri arrest or arrest situation, uh, don't administer hypertonic saline and Antibiotics, obviously antibiotics and antivirus are not indicated in bronchiolitis. So yeah. it's that distinction between croup where the evidence says they are beneficial and bronchiolitis where the evidence is there is no benefit uh, at all.
0: Uh, Am I getting those two mixed up in my head then in the, in terms of the advice? Is that, have we always, has there always been advice to use steroids in croup?
1: It's what certainly been, historically it's been common practice. It's common uh, but, practice, I know, yeah. but it's, I but I think it's also been common practice at at times for treatment of bronchiolitis as well. Okay. Um, So um, I've got, I've put links to the, to the um, BPAC and Starship hospital guidelines for the various conditions. And that that, um, is consistent with the clinical part, you know, um, community clinical pathways advice as well.
0: And those pearls, the practical evidence about real life situations, um, in the New Zealand doctor are another good um, source of just quick uh, updates and education, aren't they? Practical yeah. evidence about real-life situations.
1: Extract them out. Extract them out. <laughs> but the um, the link to the BPAC bronchiolitis guidance plus the Starship guidance on, on bronchiolitis give really uh, helpful algorithms um, and um, signs for, to classify you of bronchiolitis as mild, moderate or severe with Management advice differing slightly between these severities. Okay. Um, so yeah, it's just that distinction between the two d- different different presentation. But yeah, not not always he, an easy distinction.
0: If if we can't give bishragnet steroids, adrenaline, saline, antibiotics or antivirals, then how does the mild, moderate and severe? It's severe. Go to hospital. Do not pass go. Do not collect. Dollars.
1: It's, it's basically around um, how uh, intensively you, you monitor in terms of bringing them back for review, that sort of thing, right, yeah. because the treatment really is hydration and oxygen if needed yeah. Yeah. Um, for the, with the bronchiolitis. Mm-hmm. Um, and then to round things off, we're prescribing again. These are uh, three, I've, I think, reasonably important observations have come out of the latest uh, MedSafe prescriber update. Uh, the March update. Uh, Mm. The first one was um, looking at the risk of neurotoxicity with kephalosporins. So there have been reports of neurotoxicity with various kephalosporins and symptoms include or findings include uh, encephalopathy, seizures uh, and or myoclonus. So the risk factors include older age groups, renal impairment, uh, underlying CNS disorders and intravenous administration which to me, brings the, you know, the older patient um, who might have renal impairment, who's coming with cellulitis, who gets the, the IV protocol, which we're not using as much now, but I think it's still used at times. Mm. So just a the potential there for neurotoxic, toxic, uh, neurotoxicity in patients with those risk factors. Um, and so if you get somebody who's been administered cephalosporins and develops a new onset neurologic, uh, neurological condition, uh, which is usually within several days after starting treatment and resolves following discontinuation. Just think, could there be a link with the uh, with the cephalosporin? And just a reminder that maximum doses, particularly the IV doses, are dependent on EGFR and mm. are listed in the New Zealand formulary and the drug data sheets. Lithium and the new diabetes agents, so the... Um, SGLT2 inhibitors such as uh, empagliflozin and dapagliflozin can increase the renal excretion of lithium and lead to decreased serum lithium levels. So we're using these much more frequently uh, these days. And the advice is to monitor the patient's serum lithium levels more frequently when a a, um, SGLT2 inhibitor is initiated or following dose changes and make an appropriate uh, adjustment to the lithium dose if required. So that's really just an awareness thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the third one uh, was a slight revelation to me, because I haven't looked at the at the prescribing guidelines for metoclopramide for quite some time. Um, but due to the risk of dystonic side effects, metoclopramide use in children and young adults aged 1 to 19 years is mm-hmm. limited to certain conditions and for second-line therapy only. So... The New Zealand formulary states uh, for patients under 20 years, use is restricted to severe intractable vomiting of known cause, vomiting of radiotherapy and cytotoxics, an aid to gastrointestinal intubation pre-medica- and pre-medication, and dose should be determined on the basis of body weight. Um, dystonia can occur after a single dose of metoclopramide more frequently in children and young adults and in females. And the recommendation, do not use in people under 20 years of age unless absolutely necessary, and then strictly follow the dose recommendations in the metaclopamide data sheets to, to reduce the risk of dystonic side effects. And I've certainly had, in my HDC work, had several complaints over the years from um, patients experiencing dystonic reactions that hadn't been warned of the possibility, and, and they are very distressing for them. And interestingly, thinking back, uh, I didn't realise at the time, but these were people who probably should not have been given it in the first place, based on these current recommendations.
0: Mm-hmm. For some reason, this this one has stuck in my head. Um, I vaguely remember seeing a patient at one stage who had a dystonic reaction um, with metoclopramide, and it, we were, brought, you know, brought in urgently into the surgery, and um, uh, with you know a presumed seizure, the uh, parent had given metoclopramide that they had in the cupboard. Is, is is what I recall and it's I think for some reason this is really stuck in my head and I, I yeah I, I need to look at the guidelines for ondansetron because again ondansetron is used off label for nausea uh, quite widely now yep. uh, where it's really in, uh I think indicated for chemotherapy induced nausea but where you know we are we are prescribing it pretty regularly
1: yeah I think it's almost taken over at, um and almost as a as a first choice yeah. uh, treatment for for nausea and vomiting.
0: Yeah, I mean, usually I, I I'm telling people better out than in if they've got a an infection uh, that's causing vomiting anyway, and it's sort of a you know see what happens in the next twenty four hours. Just sip lots of fluids.
1: <laughs> but it's your I guess your, your um migraine sufferer who,
0: yeah, vomits yeah. and yeah. those yeah. sorts of
1: people. Yeah. But the um and I don't know how many practices would keep. Cogentin in the cupboard these days. I mean that used to be a very satisfying action in my ED days of giving cogentin to people with dystonic reactions and that would yes. you know yeah. resolve within minutes usually. But uh, yeah. But maybe we won't yeah. need it if we're following the prescribing precautions.
0: Yeah. No, but a very good a good reminder to avoid using that.
1: And that's it for for this month.
0: Thank you, Dave. That's awesome. So Hayako, uh, hearing hearing um, and you know, really, we'd really recommend people go and have a look in in that on that website and look at your prescribing, look at your practices prescribing compared to the to the national stuff. Talked about kiwi fruit and constipation, a great great alternative to prescribed medication. Just to sort of advise people to to use just two kiwi fruit a day. I'll be diving into the um, CBT course on uh, insomnia, um, so that I don't have to. Watch late night television anymore, and buy <laughs> gym um,
1: equipment that you don't use.
0: Gym <laughs> <laughs> equipment that I never use. Uh, and we talked about CRP and its value in, or potential value in abdominal pain in children, but also, you know, the interesting sort of potential for it in terms of point of care testing for bacterial and viral infections. Um, you know, maybe in the future. Group and steroids. Thank you so much for reminding me steroids for croup, but not for bronchiolitis. And then um, those prescriber updates around um, Kevillosporins and neurotoxicity, lithium and the new diabetes um, agents and um, metoclopramide, and avoid using that in people under the age of 20. Thanks, Dave. That's um, uh, yet more pearls of wisdom. The, uh, for us but the, the practical evidence for real life situations that matter or something like that. forgotten again already <laughs> see you again next one see you later thanks for listening please like and share this podcast if you found it useful the show notes on the podcast website contain links to all the resources that we discussed a video Version of this podcast is available on the Pinnacle Practice website at pinnacle.co.nz. Kakiteano.